0: Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Gabe Coyle. I am the campus pastor here at Christ Community's downtown campus. And it's so good to see you all. I, I just love um, when the weather's like this. Yesterday, um, my wife and I, we we took a long walk. So we live right here in the area, and we walked up to the city market, you know, spent the day up there, and then walked back, stopped at the grocery on the way back, through so some of the groceries in the uh, stroller, and uh, made our way back. It was such a beautiful day, and I just this type of weather, it gets me excited. Um, I love it. Um, well, I digress because, uh, you know, when I think about these kinds of days, it's a lot harder, but I still enjoy them. I love a good lazy day, right? A really good lazy day. I mean, you know what I'm talking about, the days you don't have to set your alarm clock. I have few of those anymore with my daughter. She is my alarm clock. Um, but those days where, yeah, you don't have to set your alarm clock and life is kind of like, that day is like an empty canvas, which you can leave on the easel and never touch all day long without any sort of guilt. It's those days where you, you watch probably too much TV, maybe do a movie marathon from your couch eating the peanut butter straight from the jar, right? You may shower, you may not. Um, I love a good lazy day, uh, but there's a, there's a large canyon difference between a lazy day and being a lazy person, right? A lazy day, every once in a while, is harmless. It's good. It's fun. But being, having a lazy life, I can kill you. And so what I'd like to start with this morning is just by asking us a question. And I'm looking for your interaction, okay? This isn't rhetorical. This is interactive. So please, help me out here. Don't be shy. I want to know—that's my fault, not theirs, my fault—what uh, comes to your mind when you think of laziness, What comes to your mind? Don't don't hesitate to shout it out. Laziness. Sleepy. Okay. Sleeping or sleepy? Sleepy. Sleepy. Why? Okay. What else comes to your mind when you think of laziness? Unmotivated. Unmotivated, yeah. Just shout them out. Just keep going. Unmotivated. There we go. You know, hooked on phonics didn't really hook with me. You know, it didn't stick. Inactive. Okay. What else? What comes to your mind when you think of laziness? Lethargic. Lethargic. Yeah. Man, you're giving me some good ones. <laughs> Lethargic. Family pet. A fa- oh, family. Tell me. Okay. I, I'm curious about that one. Uh, expound quickly for us, Sherry. Okay. Great, that's a good visual, yeah. The fat cat, right? Not the fat dog. I like dogs too much. Fat cat. What else? What comes to your mind when you think of laziness? What is it? Stabby. Stinky. Oh, what was in the back? Cozy? Stinky and cozy. Oh, if you've got a cozy stinky, that's... A cozy stinky dog. A cozy, stinky dog family pet yeah we're bringing it together sloth, sloth? Mm. yes and usually it's say sloth you know, they just let the jaw drop a little bit with that oh you're a sloth anyway who cares what's that who cares a who cares attitude we got phrase here this is good a who <laughs> cares attitude up, I guess. oh not happening <laughs> sg <laughs> S- G, <laughs> Snuffleupagus. I don't know why the G's there, but that's what we're going with. So think of Snuffleupagus from Sesame Street, yeah. Ooh, who threw that one out there? Great job, Wendy. Man. Yeah, the phrase, ah, tomorrow I'll get to it. Good. What else? Depressed. What is it? Depressed. Depressed? Apathetic. Apathetic. Yeah. I'm whispering it, and then I realize I have headphones on, or whatever this is, the mic. (laughs) Headphones. I'm apathetic. Yeah. Anything else? Lack of self-esteem, movies? Oh, man. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. That's right. That deserves almost a round of applause. <laughs> yeah. Okay, or not. Never mind. Hey, lazy. Come on. No, just kidding. Seven deadly sins. Seven. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sleep in late. Great job, Micaiah. What else? What comes to your mind when you think of laziness? Anything else? Oh. Ooh, yes. Good job, Aaron. Reliable. Pillow. Pillows. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> That's great. I love the tactile nature of that. That's so good. It's Very concrete. What else? Anything? Mm. <laughs> the marker's fading. I don't know. Now, um, when we have all these different ideas, of laziness, I think there's one guy, the comedian Jim Gaffigan, who captures this air of laziness perfectly. So let's watch together just shortly.
1: I struggle with my laziness. I'm like, should I sit down and do nothing or should I lie down and do nothing? <laughs> You'd think lazy people like me would have been weeded out by natural selection. <laughs> I can't imagine someone like me in pioneer times. I really got to harvest those crops or my eight kids aren't going to make it through winter. I'll have other kids. <laughs> I got to get back to staring at the barn. fun <laughs> doing nothing. But if you do nothing for too long, the most menial task is exhausting. You're like, I actually have to point the remote control? What is this, the 50s? Can't I just look at the TV and it'll know what I want to watch? You have been watching TV for a couple hours and you suddenly lose the remote? I haven't even gotten up. I don't remember throwing it. Well, looks like I'm watching this infomercial.
0: You know, when we watch that, we can laugh, right? Uh, When we think of laziness... Most of us are sitting in here and probably thinking, Lazy? Gabe, there's no way I'm lazy, okay? I got six hours of sleep most nights. If you look at my Google cow, I barely made it here this morning, right? When we think of laziness, we many oftentimes, especially when we look at our schedules, don't think we're lazy people. Um, but actually, there's something I learned, even about my own life this past week, as I was thinking about this passage and laziness, um, really the, the understanding that busyness, isn't the opposite of laziness. Busyness, it's not the opposite of laziness because in all of our activity, we can be doing so many things that actually we can totally avoid and neglect one part of our life, the one part of our life that keeps all the rest together, holds them together, and we can totally leave it in shambles. What I'm talking about is most of us in here, myself included, we wrestle through spiritual laziness, okay? Okay. And the prolific author, Eugene Eugene Peterson, he talks about this unappealing truth in an interview where he says, busyness is the enemy of spirituality. It is essentially laziness. It is doing the easy thing instead of the hard thing. It's filling our time with our own actions instead of paying attention to God's actions. It's an either or situation. Busyness has nothing to do with activity and spirituality is not the absence of activity. You either enter into what God is doing or you don't. A busy person is a lazy person because they're not doing what they're supposed to do. Come on, Eugene, like give us a break. And I think the hardest part as I was reading this was that he's so right. He's so right. You can run your kids to a thousand events. You can throw a loft party every week. You can never miss a happy hour, right? And yet amidst your loaded calendar is the painful roots of a neglected life. Your soul is anemic. And according to what we just heard, not from Jim Gaffigan, um, this this life isn't for the lazy. It's not for the lazy. And hear me this morning, God isn't trying to chalk your calendars full of more stuff. To the contrary, many times God asks us to do less before he ever calls us to do more. Combating spiritual laziness is just as much about stopping from doing pointless things as it is about doing the right things. And this is why the author of Hebrews uses the metaphor of a race here to describe the Christian life. It's a race. It demands your all. It demands your focus. It demands your energy. And this is partly why this life, this Christian life, is not for the lazy now, before I get ahead of myself, we haven't been in the book of Hebrews for a couple weeks. In Easter, we spent time in Matthew. This last week, we spent a, an amazing time in destination celebration before the hail came, right? Um, so let's just reveal a little bit about where we've been in the book of Hebrews over these past few months. Well, Hebrews, it is a letter, um, but it's probably best described as a sermon that was written to first century Christians, people who are a lot like you and I, And they're wrestling with their laziness as they run with Jesus, as we stay with this metaphor. So in these first 11 chapters, the author has been building this argument that Jesus is better. He doesn't come out and say Jesus is the best, but over and over again, he says, Oh, Moses. Oh, Aaron. Oh, this. Oh, this rest. Oh, this trial. Jesus is always better. And we kind of talked about this at the very beginning by using this card, cross greater than sign blank. No matter what you put in that blank, Jesus is better. And we're all at danger from drifting from our heart's ultimate desire. And he even talks about the great audacity that many of us have of faking following Jesus and the repercussions that come when that reality is true for our own lives. Nobody wants that in this room to be true of them, to be faking that life. And then we get to chapter 11, which we saw a couple weeks ago, where we see this litany of men and women who have actually braved some of the most intense circumstances and following God, and they lived a life of faith such that they're commended for their faith by God. This is a beautiful picture of affirmation and honor Names we many times recognize, you know, the movie just made, Noah. Um, You've got Abraham, you've got Sarah, you've got Moses, Samson, David, on and on. And all these folks were clearly far from perfect. But by faith, they were able to draw near to the perfect God. And this is where we get to our passage. Hebrews chapter 12, if you have a Bible with you, Great. Turn to Hebrews chapter 12. If you don't, we have some Bibles on the flip side of the dividers. They're yours to keep, to have, and to hold. Um, But chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, and it reads, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It's time for us to get into the race, to stop stretching and start running. This life, it's not for the lazy. And this, as we dive into our passage this morning, we're going to see three reasons why that is the case. First, life is a race, not a vacation. Secondly, life requires intentional action. Not distraction. And then thirdly, life is designed for joy, not drudgery. And that's a linchpin there at the end. That's a key component. So we're going to walk through those three. Life is a race, not a vacation. Life requires intentional action, not distraction. And life is designed for joy, not drudgery. So let's see. First, right away, I mean, this metaphor is screaming at us. Life is a race, not a vacation. I mean, whether you're a Christian or not, and you're here this morning, I'm almost sure all of us have heard somebody compare life to a race. Um, It may be obvious, but what isn't obvious is how many of us don't live that way. We're not engaged in training. We don't see life as a race. With people walking around downtown for the March of Dimes, the Boston Marathon happening recently, races and walks are happening all over the place. And the author of Hebrews, he wants us to picture, he wants us to grab this, that the moment you were born is like the starting pistol going off. The ups and downs, the twists and turns are the very race that has been laid out before you. And although it's not the end, the finish line is death. And he's calling us, God is charging us to run this race with endurance. He says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. I remember when I was in track in high school, especially the first early races, um, you know, I would get out there, and I was in track just to stay in shape for soccer. I mean, I enjoyed running, but mainly I enjoyed soccer, so I engaged in track just to stay in shape, because um, I guess I lacked discipline. I couldn't run on my own. So I, I joined track, and you know, those first couple races, I'd be neck and neck with some of these guys who've been training for these specific races, but what about, about three-fourths of the way through, I'd hit the wall. If any, if any of you have ever done any sort of competitive running or just running in general, you know what it means to hit the wall. Hitting the wall is when that boost of adrenaline that comes from the beginning of race jitters wears out. And then your legs feel like cinder blocks because they're full of lactic acid. And if you had any semblance of pleasure in running, it's gone <laughs> when you hit the wall. The perseverance in running is what's got to take over if you're ever going to reach the finish line. And endurance is, is holding out in the face of difficulty. It's acknowledging pain, but it's saying that it's worth it to keep going. Pain will come. This race is very difficult. You see, so many people, they'll start the race, but continuing the race with endurance to the end, that's the game-changer. So before we move on, ask this question of yourself. How do you see the Christian life? Expectations are a big component of our relationships and our life. How do you see the Christian life? Do you see it as a hobby, a side interest? And this is how you know how you see it. Do you try to squeeze it around everything else that takes precedence in your life? Does the Christian life just get whatever leftover margins you have? Then it's a hobby. It's kind of a side interest. Do you see the Christian life as a vacation, something that you engage in a couple times a year to get you energized that you can go work in real life? Then you're seeing the Christian life as a vacation. But here, the author of Hebrews, God himself speaking through the author of Hebrews, he wants us to see the Christian life, the life we've been called to, as an all-encompassing race. The alternative can be described, I think, best by this anti-motivational poster from despair.com. I love these things. (laughs) If you see the Christian life as a vacation or a hobby, when you hit the wall, you're going to be a lot like this guy who's sitting on the sidelines looking down at the runners and it says, Laziness, success is a journey, not a destination. So stop running, right? Um, you, You want to give up. There's no point. And throughout the book of Hebrews, we hear of these warnings of those who gave up, those who stopped caring. Those who drifted away, this life is not for the lazy. And if it is a race, we come to our second point. Life requires intentional action, not distraction. Life requires intentional action, not distraction. I mean, the author, he doesn't want us to just know that life is a race, but he wants to give us wisdom on how to run well. He wants us to know how to run harder, faster, better, stronger, you know, and he highlights this key understanding of intentionality being central to our walk, our run with Jesus. Thoughtful next steps that avoid distractions. You see, distractions become attractions when we've lost our purpose and our actions. Distractions become attractions when we've lost our purpose and our actions. Victor Frankl, he was the survival he was a survivor of the Holocaust. Um, He's also a well-known neurologist and psychiatrist, and he pioneered the approach in psychotherapy that focuses on the human search for meaning. And he gets this. He says, when a person can't find a deep sense of meaning, they distract themselves with pleasure. And in our culture, the options for distraction are everywhere. They're so easy. I don't know how many times I get locked into binge on Netflix. And if you're not careful, you can spend your whole time there. Um, so running with, intent, uh, with endurance, it first takes this intentionality. If we're ever going to guard ourselves from all these distractions, it takes intentionality by running with others. Running with others. Remember the flow of Hebrews we talked about here at the beginning. Um, this word, therefore, is probably one of the strongest transitions in this whole, this whole sermon. This whole letter to the book of, uh, to the, this community of Hebrews. It's critical. And because in chapter 11, right before, we see that by faith, Enoch had run. By faith, Noah had run. By faith, Abraham and Sarah had run. By faith, Moses and, and Jephthah and Barak and David and Samuel and countless others have run this race before. This isn't the first time. And you may think your race is very unique, and it probably is, but it's probably not the toughest race in the world. There are others who've gone through excruciating realities and they've made the race. They've endured to the end. And they're cheering us on. This is the language of the cloud of witnesses that's being mentioned here right there at the beginning of chapter 12, verse 1. Remember you don't run alone, but every step you take is in the trajectory of an ancient path that thousands have tread before you. You know, even here though, as we think about this, this running with others, it's more than just seeing those who have run before you and who have endured and actually have received commendation from God. But it's also noticing those who are running around you, running with you. Um, this isn't a time trials run where you're just by yourself out on the track against time. This is a communal run. There there are those who are around you running the same race. I remember in soccer, uh, once again, coming back to soccer, football, um, when I was in high school, we would do these terrible runs where you would go around the field in a straight line, single file, and then the last person, the caboose, would sprint around to the front as you're running, and then as soon as you got to the front, the person in the back would then sprint around to the front. So you would keep rotating as you're going around the field. It was intense. Now, the, the good thing about it and the brilliant aspect of this exercise is it realized or it helped us see our health as a team rather than any one individual. You were only as fast as the slowest person on your team. And as we would do this, I remember specifically, I think it was my junior year, there was this one kid, Kevin. He always came in year after year very in, uh, out of shape. Throughout the summer, he never exercised at all. And so he'd come in, great ball <laughs> skills, but terrible health. And we would be running around the field doing this. And it was always, at the beginning of the year, we had to cheer him on. And I remember my coach would come up alongside Kevin when we would do these, these, these laps. And when it was time for Kevin to sprint, our, my coach would be right beside him. And it wasn't demeaning. He was a Christian and he was trying to encourage him. He would run beside me and say, come on, Kev, you can do it. Keep pushing, keep pushing. And then, you know, we're all out of breath. And then coach would say, come on, guys, encourage Kev. You know, it's like, oh, come on, Kev, seriously. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I can't yell anymore, Kev, just push, you know. Um, But what was so great about that is that in that exercise, we strengthened our communication skills as a team. So when we were on the pitch, it taught us to be speaking and encouraging one another. And it also enabled us to out-endure many of the other teams for the 90 minutes on the pitch. And as the season progressed, we just saw our team continue to grow in this way. And so in our own lives, you need to be asking the question, who do you have in your life who's cheering you on? Who do you have in your life who's cheering you on to run the race well? And maybe secondarily, if you feel really good, you feel like you're in shape, who are you cheering on? You see, it's not just about how it benefits you, but since we are running together, how are you speaking into others' lives? How are you cheering them on? How are you helping others endure the race that's been set out before us? This life, it's not for the lazy, and we need each other to run with endurance, the race set before us. But even here, we can't stop with just saying, we're going to be intentional, about running with others. We need to also be intentional about running without baggage. And I know there's a lot of baggage with the word baggage, (laughs) you know. uh, But let me me explain. The author of Hebrews, he says, let us also lay aside every weight, every weight. In Greco-Roman culture, it was common to strip off anything that would slow you down in the race. I mean, anything. And so uh, every time I watch professional runners now, I kind of get awkwarded out by their weird spandex things anyway. But imagine, first century, they would run free in the wind. I mean, <laughs> totally naked. And, and, and really, the picture here is meant to be pretty explicit. Strip off anything and everything that's going to slow you down in this race that Christ has called you to. This language of a weight, or as some translations capture, a hindrance, um, is something that's otherwise good, but weighs you down. Something Clothing is good, okay? Let's just get that out there. <laughs> clothing is good. Um, it's something that's otherwise good, but weighs you down in your run. And it can be very particular to your personality. One thing that weighs you down may not weigh down another. It may be very particular to your vocation, your job, your location, your station in life. You know, in the U.S. culture, and I'm steeped in that. (laughs) I don't know why. Um, In the U.S. culture, we have a heightened value for efficiency, don't we? And that can be a very good thing, Um, but it can't be the ultimate thing, efficiency. And Matthew Perriman, in his new book, How the Gospel Transforms the Way You Get Things Done, explains why. He says, while efficiency is important, it works only when we make it secondary, not primary. It doesn't matter how efficient you are if you are doing the wrong things in the first place. More important than efficiency is effectiveness, getting the right things done. Or as a well-known author on all things productivity, Peter Drucker, he writes this well. He says, nothing is less productive than to make more efficient what should not be done at all. And maybe some of us have been in that place. We're trying to get so good at crunching the time when we shouldn't be doing that at all in our lives. So the question I ask us this morning as we seek to follow God's word and laying aside these extra weights, is what distractions, what weights, what hindrances do you have in your life right now that you need to at least stop doing or limit doing altogether? Don't make your race harder than it has to be. Um, It's kind of like if if you've ever run before, (laughs) you know the feeling where you start with running with your iPod in your hand. And if you're going to go for a longer distance... um, Starting with an iPod feels great because you're going to the jam. I've got MIA pumping in my ears, four on the floor. I'm not thinking about what I'm doing. But about mile six, this iPod feels as heavy as a 20 pound cinder block. I mean, I want to do anything but hold this iPod. And really, as we run, the life that we've been called to is a marathon, it's not a sprint. And these hindrances, these weights will slowly weigh you down. And when you're exhausted and you're worn out, they're going to stop you in the run. So you need to be asking this question, what weight is slowing you down? And sometimes this is really clear for me. You know, sometimes I need to be honest and not play FIFA soccer on my iPad five hours a week. Um, Now that especially I have a daughter and a wife who works really hard (laughs) in caring for my daughter. Other times it's not so clear. And this is where we lean into those runners who are around us and we ask them, hey, what weights or hindrances do I have in my life? They may be good things, but they're maybe not the best thing for me in running this race with endurance to the end. Now, we've seen running with others needs to be an intentional choice and running without baggage is an important intentional choice, but that can't be it. And the author of Hebrews wants us to grasp this. It's also being an intentional and running away from sin, running away from sin. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. We have to fight this clinging sin, don't we? Um, the sin that trips us up. And what's so difficult about sin? As I was thinking about it, it's just really sneaky. Like you think you're putting on the, you know, the pumps, you know, to get running, when in reality you just tied on six different bricks that are slowing you down. Um, and I was recently listening to a sermon by Paul Tripp, and this is going to be a longer quote, but I think it's worth it. So just giving you a heads up. And it's going to be on the screen if it's not too small for you to read along. Um, and he writes, or he, he says this about the deceptiveness of sin. You know, when that man is at the mall and he's lusting after that woman, he doesn't see danger, he doesn't see disaster, he doesn't see brokenness, he doesn't see immorality, he sees beauty. That's the danger of sin. When that young person has now stepped way beyond God's boundaries and way beyond his parents' boundaries, he doesn't feel danger. He doesn't feel the disaster and destruction of what he's doing. He feels the buzz of temporary autonomy and temporary freedom. It's like a drug. The husband who has just in a nasty, self-righteous, arrogant way demeaned his wife and her wisdom by arguing her into a corner with great delight doesn't feel the ugliness and the lack of love in that. He feels the power of winning. The child who's eating the last bite of the cookie that he was told he must not have before dinner doesn't taste disaster. (laughs) He tastes chocolate chips. And because the last bite happened before mom came into the room, he lives with the power of getting away with it. The scary thing about sin is its deceitfulness, its ability to present itself as something beautiful when it's not beautiful at all. Some of you have fallen in places, maybe even this week, because you bought into the beauty of sin and you let that beauty propel you when sin is anything but beautiful. And the author of Hebrews, he highlights this deceptive nature of of, of sin. In Hebrews 3.13, he says, but exhort one another every day as long as it's called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You know, sin, it never shows us its cards. It's really good at misdirection. It gets you to focus over here so that you trip up over here And here's, I think, the even more deceptive aspect of sin. Even more than telling us that evil things are good, even more than telling us that destructive things are for our flourishing, it tries to give us shortcuts to good things that destroy us. You see what I'm saying? It tries to convince us that the shortcuts to these good things are better. You know, and many times this happens when we're exhausted and we're frustrated and we see the end of the race and it feels like it's too far away that we're going to make it. So I need this shortcut to survive. And that's one of the best deceptive ploys of sin. It whispers things like, why wait for God's justice? Gossip about your coworkers now. Show your boss who's really in charge through passive aggressive ploys. Feel the exhilaration of revenge now. Why wait to purchase that new car, iPhone, home, or jeans? Sometimes jeans are just as expensive as iPhones. Be generous to yourself now and generous to others later. Aren't you the one who works for that paycheck anyway? Why wait for marriage to enjoy sex? Why work to save your marriage when you can have a new exciting relationship now? And when you're exhausted and you're frustrated, those shortcuts look so appealing because you don't think you can make it to the end. And so the shortcut seems like the only way out. And as you step into these shortcuts, you get caked with mud, surrounded by mistakes, and you found yourself at a dead end in the middle of nowhere. So as you think about your life, what sins are slowing you down? When you're frustrated, when you're exhausted, when you're worn out, do you run to your sins or run away from them? See, this life, it's not for the lazy, friends. Now, these three, running with others, you know, running without baggage, and running away from sin, they're helpful guidelines in the Christian life. But if that's all that there is, if that's the whole story, we'll never endure to the end. That's moralism. That's saying that we have to do the right things to finally make it. It's true life is a race and it's not a vacation. And it's true we need to be intentional in our actions rather than immersing ourselves in distractions. But when I hit mile 25 of the marathon of life, I need something more than a metaphor that's going to motivate me. I need to know that this life is designed for joy rather than drudgery. It's not just my legs screaming at me and it's just the the reason we were designed is to run in pain. That's it. That's terrible. (laughs) That's awful. (laughs) Please don't ever let that be true of my life. But joy it presupposes there's a purpose in the run. Running has a goal, not just a finish line. And when God created the universe, when he created you and me, he created us for joy. I like the way John Ortberg writes in his book, Faith and Doubt. If Jesus is right, joy was at the beginning, was challenged in the middle, and will be restored at the end. If he was wrong... Joy is a momentary illusion that was absent in the beginning and soon will be forever stilled. I believe Jesus was right. I believe joy is as real as Cleveland. (laughs) I don't know how real Cleveland is anymore these days. but, um, But the good news of the gospel is that pursuing Jesus is our highest and ultimate joy. Joy has always had its origin and its climax in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And it's this joy that fuels the Christian in their run. But if you're here this morning and you don't think Jesus is better, if you don't think his life was inspiring, his death saving, and his resurrection real, then why would you run? It's a pointless race. If Jesus is not at the center, if he is truly not our ultimate joy, and this is where faith is so crucial for us as we run. Now, I know if we stay with this metaphor, many of you are like, Gabe, you know, Um, You're like the personal trainer. You're paid to be in shape, right? How are you whipping us, you know, into shape? This is ridiculous. What gives? And the great comfort from this passage is that Jesus gives. The great comfort is that it's not ultimately me who's pursuing you and and, and continuing to prod you and to run for your own good. It's Jesus. Jesus himself is pursuing us. Look at at verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. This race was impossible until Jesus made it possible. He is the founder and the perfecter of this race, this life of faith. Without him, we can't start the race. Without him, we have no hopes of coming to completion. As the founder, he blazed the trail. He knows the track because he designed it. He was the entrepreneur after whom we follow, and he's the one at work in us to keep us going on in our faith. For some of you this morning, you may be on a race to nowhere for no reason, but here today, you need to start running with Jesus. You've been on a track trying to forge your own trail, trying to go at your own pace. But take it from Jesus, someone who knows the track better than you and who has come out a winner. He knows the science behind running well and the art of enjoying running, if we're staying within this metaphor. And sometimes we just need to learn to follow him on the track, yes? And some of you are absolutely exhausted because you're trying to run it by yourself. You may be trying to go in the right direction, but you've lost your sights on the end. So how do we follow someone who's already run the race? Well, step one is you admit that Jesus is the only way to God. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by Him. Exclusivity, it's key. He is the true deliverer, and only life in Him can bring the joy our hearts are desperate for. And then step two is spending time with Him. This is spending time reading the gospel accounts, getting to know how he's revealed himself perfectly in Jesus so that we can begin to recognize his work in the world still today. He's not done working. He's not dead. Also, we spend time praying because, once again, he's not dead. He's seated at the right hand of God so that we can come boldly before his throne of grace as he listens to us. And then finally, we do all this in a community of other runners. We call these community groups. Um, That's how we've structured these pace groups that are working with one another. Obviously, to start doing some of these things, you're going to have to stop doing some things. You can't just keep adding more and more and more to your calendar. It's unhealthy, and that's not what God's calling you to. But there are some things in life you're going to have to stop in order to start doing these in a faithful way and following Jesus. Ask yourself, do you want to run the race with endurance that's set before you? If you do, then look at the end of the race. This is the ultimate thrust of this whole passage, is that everyone in this great cloud of witnesses, everyone in this momentous stadium of saints, the longer you run the race, you realize they're not pointing at themselves. They're not saying, hey, look at me. Remember me, Moses? Remember I parted the Red Sea? Remember that? Remember that? The longer you're running the race, the more you realize they're pointing to the end. Each and every one of them, each one of their lives is pointing to the finish line and the one who stands there, who has finished the race for us. Look to the one who for the joy set before him, endured the ray of the cross, seeing its shame as a worthy price to be paid for victory. He was so centered on fulfilling his mission on obeying God the Father that each bloody step was an opportunity to see the glorious, it is finished on the cross. Look to him who carried the cross of his crucifixion. And as he carried his cross, he saw your face and my face. He did it for us, that we might have a founder and perfecter of our faith. The tough mutter, man, it has got nothing on this race. And Jesus, he went to the very end. To the point of death for this race. And the best part of this race is that he ran and he won. He received the victor's crown and is seated at the right hand of God. We celebrated this a couple weeks ago at Easter. And as we sit here this morning, as I stand, you sit, as we're here, I think about the glorious reality of his resurrection that he promised he would rise again and he did. They couldn't find his body. And it was so game-changing that the very early disciples who were following him, who then scattered at his crucifixion, suddenly had the courage enough after 30 days to then die for the very Jesus that they had abandoned. Are they really that many insane people in the first century that they would die for a lie? No way. I don't think so. And then when Jesus said, I'll build my church 2,000 years later, Every continent, knows a taste of the gospel. There are still some people groups who do not have the gospel in their language, but it's coming. Jesus is building his church and this isn't something that's done by a lunatic who died on a cross and was built off of a lie. This is someone who rose from the grave, who defeated death and now provides everlasting life for those who follow him on this everlasting race of joy. And now he waits at the finish line his arms open wide for his weary runners, ready to embrace and say, well done, and share the victor crown with his disciples, his followers. Look to Jesus, the good, good end to a very hard race. This life, it's a race. It's not a vacation. And it takes intentional action. While avoiding distraction. And the beautiful reality is it's designed for joy, not drudgery. This is all because of Jesus, centered in his person and his work. This life, it's not for the lazy, friends. So let's run together. Let's run faster to him, harder with him, better because of him, and stronger through him. Let's do that together. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you in prayer (laughs) because you are seated. You have finished the race and we ask that you would energize us by the power of the gospel, the good news of what you've already accomplished for us, that we might enter into the life you have for us, the life we were designed to live. Give us zeal. By the power of your spirit, may we be intentional in following you. Give us discernment. Give us courage to step into community to open up to others. And we do all this because of Jesus and through Jesus we pray, amen. Well, before Jesus ascended to heaven, he set before us a meal, a meal that nourishes us and also proclaims this gospel to our senses through taste, through touch, through smell. This gospel that proclaims that Jesus is in fact the author and perfecter of our faith. Through common broken bread, we remember Jesus' body broken for us. And through common poured juice, we remember his blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins. This morning, you don't have to be a member of Christ's community to partake of the Lord's Supper, but we do ask for your good that if you do not believe Jesus to be your Lord and Savior and you are not following him in this grand race, that you would not partake of the Lord's Supper. If you do come, though, We'd ask that you'd come down the center aisle, circle around to one of the two stations in the back. Partake in groups of four to six. You'll take the bread, dip it in the juice, and partake together, and then return to your seats through the center aisle. Please don't feel any need to hurry. Please don't feel any need to rush. This is a family affair. Sometimes that gets messy. I know the aisles are a little tighter. That's okay. Um, But before we do come, let's hear the words of Jesus. For on the night... That Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whenever you're ready, Please come.